Welcome everyone to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz. I want to welcome all of our viewers from around the world. Thank you for joining us tonight. Hope you could spend the next hour here with us. And uh, as always, if you have yet to do so, if you want more information about our show, please visit us on the web at deadtalklive.com. You can see featured episodes, recent episodes, and our entire guest list. So let me go ahead and welcome some of you guys on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. We have Khaleesi with us. Saz is going to be moderating. On the Instagram side, we have Annie, Dixie Storm, Marie is moderating on Instagram, Ivana is with us, welcome to all you guys, Philip Thompson has just joined us on Facebook, Susanna has just joined us on YouTube, as has Venika. Uh, like I said, I hope everyone's enjoying their Saturday evening, and a little note that on December 19th, guys, we are going to have special guest Ronan Rubenstein. He plays TK Strand in the hit in the hit show 911 Lone Star and he just had a movie that was released yesterday to all the on-demand streaming services which is called Smiley Face Killers. It's a very interesting movie. I saw it. I saw it last night and it's inspired by true events. Uh, just to give you a little background on the movie uh, starting in the late 90s, continuing till fairly recently, there have been over like 150 mysterious drownings of college-age men in uh, California. Now, there is a big split and controversy as to whether these are accidental drownings or the work of serial killers. Uh, the serial killer aspect is because near the site of every one of the drownings, there is a graffitied, uh, spray-painted smiley face. So this movie takes a very interesting spin on that story. Like I said, it's controversial. There are some who believe that they are just accidental drownings, and there are quite a few that believe that this is the work of a group of serial killers that have been working for decades yet to be caught and there's a whole bunch of documentaries on this and like i said uh there's even other movies on it as well but yesterday smiley face killers starring ronan rubenstein was released to amazon prime voodoo fandango everywhere uh so it's definitely worth checking out he is going to be our guest on saturday december 19th to talk about the movie and uh, as well as his hitch TV show, 911 Lone Star. So you guys don't want to miss that. Check it out. Uh, I want to welcome Cece Weezy, who's just joined us. I'm a white boy, just joined us saying hello. Welcome uh, to everyone. Uh, I'm a white boy, has who came in a little late on the conversation. Ronan Rubenstein, the star of 911 Lone Star. And also a movie that just came out yesterday called Smiley Face Killers. Uh, so guys, you should check it out. And today we are going to be talking about paranormal movies. And it's a great time to announce that The Conjuring 3, which is titled The Devil Made Me Do It, is being released on June 4th of 2021. And this is a Warner Brothers film. And as we discussed several episodes ago, it's going to be released simultaneously to several select movie theaters. 
if they're operating in June, and to HBO Max the same day. So uh, I know The Conjuring has a lot of fans out there. It spurred a whole universe. So if you guys are into The Conjuring movies like I am, uh, June 4th, 2021 is when it's going to be released. And personally, I cannot wait. Uh, Khaleesi writes, uh, yep, there is a, a sequel to Train to Busan, which is what we talked about like two days ago about the, the different zombie take throughout the different movies. Train to Busan was one of the movies that we talked about. And there is a, a sequel. Uh, it's called Peninsula. Uh, so it's a sequel to Train to Busan. I have not seen the sequel yet. All I can vouch for is the original Train to Busan, which is absolutely amazing. So let's get on to some, you know, it's been kind of a slow news day today, but some stuff made the headlines. This is an interesting one. This, this, I was debating whether to talk about this one or not. Fear of the Walking Dead fans call for AMC to cancel the horror series despite the season seven renewal. Why? Anyway, it's in the middle of its best season. Let's see what they have to say. The Walking Dead universe has undergone quite the shakeup in 2021. Fear of the Walking Dead returned for its sixth season on AMC. The Walking Dead World Beyond premiered, and the flagship The Walking Dead series had its 10th season extended before it was announced it would be ending after the two-year uh, season 11. Added to the mix, Daryl Dixon, Carol spinoff, which we all know about. However, while the Walking Dead fans were understandably devastated to hear the main series would be ending, some are similarly dismayed to hear about Fear's renewal. I mean, there are some fans out there that despite the great season that we're in the middle of of Fear, they want to see the show canceled. If you don't like it that much, don't watch it. Because there are quite a few of us that are really enjoying uh, this current season of Fear. Anyway, even though it means fan favorites Morgan and Alicia would be back, there are calls for the show to end on a high note. Please let season 7 be the last season, one Fear the Walking Dead fan tweeted after the official account made the announcement about the renewal. The show is so good right now, ended along with the other shows in the Walking Dead universe. So I guess these fans are afraid that if it goes beyond season 7, it's just going to get really crappy. And hey, you know what? It could. It absolutely could. But let's see where it goes. We're not even done with season 6 yet. And you're already calling for the show to be canceled at the end of season 7. Uh, and the Fear of the Walking Dead fans wasn't alone. As a second weighed in, no way this show has gone downhill since season 3. Unless you bring in new showrunners, I don't think the original, the OGs, the original gang, will get any screen, screen time at all, to be honest. This is just The Walking Dead Jr. Ouch! This guy went as far to call it The Walking Dead Jr. And I have said many times before, guys, if you're going to watch Fear, don't use the main series as a measuring stick. Judge it on its own merits. 
I've always said that. Always, always said that. Uh, my white boy writes, I love fear. So do I. I I'm just captivated by this season of fear. Want to welcome Nico Soros, ACO. Uh, Rosia has just joined us on Instagram. Welcome, guys. Uh, anyway, uh, and it will be about the, uh, this is another comment, about the noobs instead of focusing on Alicia, Victor, and Luciana, and Daniel. I, I don't recognize him anymore. Anyway, these are just a bunch of different comments on how several people just don't want to see fear continue either after the end of season six or after season seven. So, of course, everyone has a right to share their opinion. I don't agree with their opinion. Uh, I think fear, like I said, and I'll keep saying it, is it's on a high note right now. And why even consider stopping it when it's on such a high note? And I'm pretty sure if this high note continues, it's going to be getting a lot more viewers, either viewers that have never watched the show or viewers that started the show, stopped, and are going to come back. Because the, the best way, and this is how The Walking Dead got such a huge viewership back in its heyday in Season 5, averaging around 15 million viewers per week, is by word of mouth. People don't really trust critic reviews. They don't trust, uh, you know, reviews that they read online. Because... You don't know if that's paid for. You don't know if that's legitimate. But if somebody you know, who's a friend of yours, family member or whatnot, says, hey, you need to check this show out. You need to check this movie out. That holds a lot of stock as opposed to a review that they read online and so on. So I think the word in regards to Fear of the Walking Dead and particularly the season that we're in the middle of right now is going to get out. It we might have a huge band of fans that won't even watch season six until uh, it's available for binge watching. So there's, it's still way too early. Uh, Lindsay, Lisa Grover, who's with us on Facebook, writes, Fear the Walking Dead is a great companion to The Walking Dead. I don't agree either. Let's see where it goes. Absolutely. So, here are the Walking Dead characters who have a higher kill count than Rick. Like I said, guys, it was a slow, slow news day today. Uh, shockingly enough, however, a few other major characters have a higher kill count than even Rick, who has 96 deaths on his hands. Damn. Dude has killed 96 people. Now, I'm assuming... That 96 number does not count walkers because that's way higher than 96. So he has killed 96 people. Accounting for both direct and indirect causes, these kills include, oh, it include walker and people. If you include walkers, man, I would think it would be a lot higher than 96. Note that only the television, the Walking Dead community, is taken into account for the purposes of this comparison. Carol, the Walking Dead characters have come a longer way uh, than Carol. Her husband's death means she no longer has to suffer at his hand, but then she loses her precious daughter, Sophia, to zombification, sobbing as Rick is forced to put the poor girl down. Most people would crumble into nothing after that, but not Carol. 
Rising to the occasion, she uses her pain to keep moving forward and better herself. She trains with various weapons, picks up a few medical skills from Herschel, and becomes one of the most valuable members of the group on and off the battlefield. There's a little doubt, however, that her fighting skills are what really make her stand out. Her kill count, 105. So Carol has 105 kill count. Now, this includes walkers and people. Um, a white boy writes, Morgan has to be number one. Uh, let's see. I did not read this article beforehand. Uh, Carol, Carol's killed her fair share of walkers and shot down plenty of the group's enemies from the cannibals of Terminus to the, wish, to the vicious wolves. And let's not forget... Carol's favorite way of exterminating her enemies when she has the chance and her favorite way is to torch them. <laughs> we cannot forget about that. Yeah, she shoots, stabs, and all that other stuff, but she's the little fire starter in the group. Not all of her kills, however, are products of her self-improvement. In season four, she and Tyrese agree that Lizzie a young girl who kills her sister Mika needs to be executed before she endangers anyone else. The heartbreaking scene is a potent reminder of the woman Carol once was and the warrior the world has forced her to become. Now, Simon, okay? Here's somebody, you know, I guess should not surprise us. Simon is on this list. Every great leader needs a right-hand man to keep them in check. Rick thought Shane would be his, but turned to Daryl when the former betrayed and tried to kill him. Negan is a very different kind of leader than Rick, but a leader is a leader, and so he, too, employs a right-hand man, Simon, played by the excellent Stephen Ogg. As as ruthless as his boss, Simon is not the guy even the most hardened post-apocalyptic survivors would want to cross. And that comes back to bite Negan. He sends his subordinate to speak with the scavengers, but Simon decides to take things one step further and has the majority of them killed on the spot. And when they say majority, they mean everyone except one who played dead. And of course, that's Jadis. Uh, so anyway, I'm just reading through your chats. CC Weezy writes, Sidiq killed 236, give or take. All right, let's see if they have him on this list. Um, including the victims of that incident, his kill count soars to 172. So that's right. Simon has put down 172 humans and walkers alike. It ends there, however, when Negan hears of the betrayal and brutally chokes Simon to death. We know how many more people that man would have killed. Who knows how many more people that man would have killed had Negan been more merciful. Uh, and you know what? You know, I got to give props to the way they wrote that. Negan gave him his fair chance. You want to be the man, you got to beat the man. Negan gave him a chance. 
you want to be the leader, you got to take me out. And it was a, you know, the only person who really took a lot of cheap shots in that fight was Simon. Uh, Negan kept it clean as he could, and he won fair and square. Uh, let's see, Lisa on Facebook writes, oh yeah, and the trash dump. Simon was Negan's right-hand man, writes Philip Tom Thompson. Negan said, uh, jump, Simon did. Yeah, but Simon held a lot of resentment, and he disagreed. He did keep his mouth shut for the majority of it, but he really disagreed on how Negan handled things, and that's scary because Simon wanted to be even more ruthless than Negan was, and that's a scary-ass thought right there. So, now here's someone that I did not expect to see on this list. Eugene, played by Josh McDermott, wasn't, isn't, and will never be the kind of character to charge into a herd of walkers or human enemies, guns a-blazing. No, Eugene is, is a survivor of a very different caliber, relying on his wits and resourcefulness to get by and make himself useful. He may have lied about being a scientist with the key to the ending the worldwide pandemic, but he's smarter than the average bear nonetheless. After being captured by Negan and the Saviors, Eugene decides to stay with them comfortable under the wing of such a powerful group that treats him relatively respectfully. They made him feel like a king. Anything he wanted, he could have. Hell, Negan even shared some of his wives with him. Uh, TJ on YouTube writes, I can kind of see it. Uh, Philip writes, he's a runner, but makes good bullets for Negan. It takes Rosita, played by the lovely Christian Serratos, who guides and protects Eugene in the early days of the apocalypse. To make Eugene realize what a fool he was to betray his friends and defect to the enemy, he gets to work on a plan that single-handedly brings the on-screen kill count, check this out, up to 186. So they're including all the people that were taken out in that field in the finale of season eight with the defective bullets that Eugene uh, rigged up. So if you add all those up, that's how they came up with that number of 186. I don't know how they're able to get it down that specific uh, because we all saw that scene where the guns backfire. It's hard to tell how many saviors were actually taken out, but apparently these people have counted, and it's 186 total for Eugene, including that infamous field scene in the end. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm a white boy, right? Yep, I think that's a BS number. And you know what? I... I'm, I'm finding it hard to agree with that number as well. Not that it may not be that high, but for them to just say 186, uh, I'm a little skeptical of that. I'm a little skeptical of that. Now, Eugene should be credit, credited for the kill count of taking out all those saviors. Absolutely, he should be credited. But is it really 186? Or are they just taking a real wild guess? I don't know. 
Knowing Rick and Negan's forces are soon to come to a head, Eugene takes the advantage of the latter's trust and sabotages the Savior's weapons. So when the two small armies finally come face to face, Negan's side is decimated when the guns all misfire. Even the very gun that Negan is holding to the back of Dwight's head. And even though that thing misfired, it didn't do any permanent damage to Negan's hand. They don't all die on the spot, but because of Eugene, their ability to fight is greatly hindered, making Rick's job that much easier. Apocalypse or not, Eugene proves that brains over brawn still holds true. How many of you guys would love to have Eugene on your team? Like, you know, if you guys remember back in your school days or if you're in school right now when, I don't know, gym or PE and they're picking out teams, who here would not wait till, who would not keep Eugene till he's the last person picked and pick him to be on your team? I would. I would definitely pick Eugene. Uh, I'm a white boy writes hell. Yeah. Let's see, on Instagram, I want to welcome Austin, Carr is with us, Fod, KC's just joined us, Samuel has joined us, welcome to all you guys. Uh, Philip writes, I would love to have him on my team, as would Lisa on Facebook. Now, of course, you guys were right, Negan is the final person on this list. No matter how many people Negan's killed on The Walking Dead, nothing comes close to the pure shock value of his first two victims. That, act, that These are the first two victims that we actually get to see on the screen. And of course, that's Abraham and Glenn. Uh, Rick and the crew are at Negan's mercy. And what does that man do? In retribution, sorry, in retribution for the deaths of several of his men, he chooses Wick, which of Rick's group He's going to kill using his trusty barbed wire-wrapped baseball bat named Lucille. Abraham succumbs to Negan's brutal beatdown first, followed by Glenn after Negan is angered when Daryl lashes out. And we've discussed this many times. If it wasn't for Daryl, nobody's blaming Daryl for punching Negan. Hell, I'd have wanted to punch him too if I just saw him bashed the head in of one of my good friends. He takes a swing at him, and Negan said he wasn't going to tolerate that crap, and he just turns around and he takes Glenn out. It shocked the hell out of us as viewers that, that the way that sequence played out, and uh, we all knew going into that season, the majority of us knew, whether you read the comic books or not, uh, you knew that Glenn was the one that died in that field in the comic books, when we saw Abraham get killed, we were all devastated. But at the same time, devastated, but also relieved that Glenn was going to survive it. But nope, they shocked the crap out of us and they ended up killing two of them. Now, I got to make a point here on how that episode really, really affected The Walking Dead, not only for the huge amount of fans that stopped watching that show after that infamous episode, but how the writing took a real sharp turn into the other direction 
after they got to see the reaction from the fans and how many of them left the show after they took out those two big stars. If you noticed over the last several seasons, we have been trained and expect uh, finales and premieres on the Walking Dead universe to have big time deaths uh, all the way through seven, uh, season seven. Now, these writers and producers and so on, the people who make the show, even though they will never publicly acknowledge and they defend how they did the premiere of season seven, you can tell that their mindset changed a lot. Not only on The Walking Dead, but through all three of the shows. The Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead, and World Beyond. Because, let's take World Beyond as the first example. We just finished an entire first season of World Beyond with not a single major character dying. Okay? Now, let's go to season 9. The finale of season 9 of The Walking Dead. It ends with a snowball fight. Okay? Nothing dramatic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, episodes, a few episodes before that, we had the whole Kingdom uh, Fair Massacre where they took out like a dozen characters at once. But ever since that, and you know, you take into account the finale of season nine, and even during the Whisperer War, the finale of season 10, which was awesome, uh, we really did not lose any major characters. I had predicted that Gabriel was a goner. I had predicted that Ezekiel was a goner. Nope, they both survived. And I guarantee you, of course, this is my guess, but that is in direct relationship to the reaction that they got after killing off major characters, starting with that premiere of season seven. It's just my guess, but if you really notice, the time after that, they have kind of stepped away from doing that and keeping the really major characters alive for the most part. The only big one after that season seven premiere, like I said, was season nine and the Kingdom Fair Massacre, where they took out 12 characters, uh, I believe it was 12, 12 heads on the sticks, uh, at once. Lisa... Let's see what's going on. TJ on YouTube writes, I feel like they attempted to like relieve us of our pain after losing 10 people, especially with the last three with the snowball fight. Khaleesi writes, and Jesus, that was another big one. That was the uh, mid-season finale of season nine, our introduction to uh, the Whisperers. So Jesus is a big one, uh, definitely. Uh, I'm not saying they're not going to kill off any more major characters, but them killing off two huge major stars in one episode and the reaction uh, that that elicited from the group. Hell, we had T-Dog. We had Irony Singleton as a guest on this show. Now, this is a person who starred on the show for the first three seasons. He was a big fan favorite, and he himself admitted 
that he was in a hotel ballroom with Michael Cudlitz. They were watching the premiere of season seven. And after that incident, where his good friend, Stephen Yen, Glenn, died, and the guy that he was watching it with, Michael Cudlitz, who played Abraham, died, that Irony Singleton did, could not continue watching the show. And he's, this is somebody who played in the show. He was a major character for the first three seasons of the show, and it had affected him so much as well. Uh, let's see, Philip writes, I think they are not adding humans, though. Just walkers. What about the whisperers? Uh, Khaleesi writes, even Emma Bell. Exactly. Emma Bell, who played Amy, uh, Andrea's sister. We had her on the show as well. And she said the same thing about that uh, season seven premiere. And we, up for seven years, and even into season nine with Jesus and that uh, massacre, we have grown accustomed and we are prepared to lose big uh, characters in finales and premieres. They have really toned that down uh, across all three shows. Like I said, World Beyond went through an entire first season. No major characters died. Fear, the same way. Uh, going back to when they really took out the huge majority of the original gang, with the exception of Daniel, Strand, and Alicia. Uh, they have stopped doing it. And of course, they've done it on The Walking Dead. Season 9 finale really surprised me. It ended in a snowball fight. And even that great Season 10 finale, uh, the character that we lost, uh, you know, we lost several, was Beatrice from Oceanside. None of the other major characters from Alexandria or Hilltop, none of them. We didn't lose any of them. So, <laughs> I'm a white boy writes, wow, grow some balls. <laughs> you know, they, they, you know, these guys, the point is viewership, okay? And if they do something like they did in season seven that really, really disrupts viewership to a show and they want to keep the show going, they're going to try doing stuff a little differently. So it's really not that hard to figure out. Anyway, a final article for today. Uh, the Walker on Instagram writes, you can't live forever. That's absolutely true. Uh, Cam on Instagram writes, do you think that Connie will die? Not anytime soon. Uh, we have to figure out, and I'm sure it's going to be explained, where the hell Connie's been uh, since she got separated from Magna since they escaped the cave. Uh, is a relationship going to develop between Connie and uh, Daryl? Uh, is she going to be in the spinoff with Daryl and Carol, even though all indications are that they're not? Because from what we hear so far... That spinoff that's going to be featuring Daryl and Carol, it's going to be them riding off and it's going to be their adventures that they get to see and experience on their journey. So where does Connie fit into that? I don't know. Uh, a lot of people are upset that they announced that spinoff so soon because the question mark of uh, Daryl's and Carol's fate 
we know now they're not going to die, even though it would cause a huge uproar if any of those two characters died. But, uh, you know, revealing that, that spinoff so soon it puts up a lot of questions, even though answering the question of whether Daryl and Carol are going to survive, that's been answered. They, were, they are going to survive, at least into their own spinoff. But it does, it looks less likely now that there is going to be a relationship between Connie and Daryl. And if there is a relationship, either it doesn't last very long or Connie dies. And who knows, Connie's death might be the thing that pushes Daryl over the edge to ultimately have him and Carol leave the communities behind and have those two just go off on their own. Just, just a possibility. Jason on YouTube writes, she was badass. Uh, Khaleesi uh, writes, uh, thank you. She saw the Insidious movies today. And we're going to, like I said, we're going to be talking about the paranormal here in a little bit and some of the p greatest paranormal movies that were out there, that are out there. Uh, here's a little lighthearted article on The Walking Dead's tallest and shortest cast members. I'm just going to go through this kind of quickly. Josh McDermott, six feet tall. All right, that's pretty average. I'm six feet tall. Cassidy McClincy, five foot four. You know, again, average. The tallest is Negan. Jeffrey Dean Morgan, he comes in at six foot one. The shortest is Alpha. Samantha Morton is only five foot three. Okay. Uh, now, the tallest in the entire show, beating Jeffrey Dean Morgan by one inch, is Cooper Andrews, who plays Jerry. He, Jerry's a big guy. He comes in at six foot two. And he's a big, big guy. And then, of course, Beta. The dude is six, four and a half. He's, he's a giant. He's a giant. Uh, well, I mean, that's, that's just blatantly obvious. Connie is only five foot two. Lauren Riddleoff. So, anyway, guys, I thought that by a little lighthearted information to know. Uh, in regards to uh, who's the tallest and shortest in regards to the Walking Dead cast. Jason Byrne writes, I'm only about five foot five. Uh, let's see. Philip Thompson says, wow. Welcome to summer. Summer has joined us. Nice to see you, summer. So today's topic, guys, we're going to be talking about paranormal horror. And uh, uh, this is, if you guys don't know, Paranormal horror movies are by far my favorite genre, subgenre in the horror movies. It's because it's the only subgenre that can actually still scare me. Uh, and I believe in it. Now, uh, back in the days, I remember people would keep this to themselves if they believed in something after death, who knows what. And if you didn't want to be called crazy, you kept your opinion to yourself. People are actually coming out more openly now. And here's a number that might shock you. In various surveys taken around the world, there are 60% of the world's population believes 
that there is something after death. What exactly, we don't know. But more than half of the world's population uh, openly admits, freely, without the fear of being ridiculed, that there is something after death. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of these ghost hunting paranormal shows on television. God, there's so many to name. Ghost Adventures, The Dead Files. And I'll admit, I watch a lot of them. I'm fascinated uh, just by the idea of it and seeing the stuff that they come up with. I do think it's a fruitless effort because these guys who are paranormal investigators are trying to get an answer that no matter what technology they use, it will never fully be answered because it's, it's just, that's just the way I believe it is. And um, they're trying to get that answer. And I think with all the different stuff that we have seen, uh, some of them are very credible shows that, yeah, they have come up with really good evidence that there is something after we die. That's all, that's all we know. What that is, I don't think we're meant to find out, and we're not going to find out until our time comes up. But anyway, going back to the movies, the whole genre, the paranormal genre, was reinvigorated uh, by a 2007 movie that only cost $10,000 to make. And that movie, of course, is Paranormal Activity. That movie ended up like I said, it cost $10,000 to make. Worldwide, it brought in $193 million. Now, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure out that's a damn good profit, okay? They took an idea. They made it very simple uh, in the form of a, you know, home video footage film. Uh Put together a, a good cast, had a good story, and they made a great movie in regards to paranormal activity. Uh, now, we got to go to what really started the modern day paranormal ghost stories, okay? And that is with a movie that is called The Amityville Horror. And this movie came out in 1979. There is a lot of controversy surrounding that movie. Uh, I'm a white boy writes the Blair Witch Project. The Blair Witch Project, came, which came out in the 90s, was a good movie. I just don't like how much they pushed to make it seem like this really happened. Uh, a lot of people were duped into believing that Everything on that tape was real, that those were not actors, that that tape was found. No, it's all BS. It's a great movie. Uh, there's not a lot of stuff that you see on camera which make it scary. It's the stuff that you don't see that make the Blair Witch Project scary. Uh, but it's a great movie. I loved it. The sequels after it were ridiculous. I mean, that's all I'm going to say about that. Anyway, 
going back to the Amityville Horror. Now, we're going back to 1979, guys. I know a lot of you have probably never watched the original uh, Amityville Horror. For me, it is like what really kick-started the modern-day paranormal movies. Uh, and growing up as a kid, it's the movie that I remember the most vividly that gave me nightmares. Okay? Before I go any further, I want to show you guys the, the trailer that came out for the Amityville Horror back in the late 70s. So when you watch this, please keep in mind, this is the 1970s, all right? But check this out. It's the kind of house they don't build anymore. A relic of a time when the world wasn't in such a hurry, when there was still time for a little charm and elegance. It has stood empty for a long while. And at the price, it is a bargain. For a growing young family, it is almost too good to be true. What do you think? I love it. James Brolin, Margot Kidder, Rod Steiger, in the Amityville Horror. God's peace in this house. Kathy, Father Delaney, there's something very important. Mommy, I want to go home. What do you want from us? after the Lutz family moved into their dream house. They were running for their lives. What happened to them is an experience in terror you will never forget. And you will believe in the Amityville horror. From the best-selling book that made millions believe in the unbelievable, the Amityville horror. Anyway, there you guys have it. Man, have trailers come a long way since then, huh? But you got to appreciate the, uh, the time period, and that's how trailers were back then. Anyway, uh, going back to the Amityville Horror, there's a backstory here. And I'm, if you guys are familiar, I apologize. I know Khaleesi wrote those red eyes that we just saw in that trailer. It was those exact red eyes that I would have nightmares about that we just saw in the trailer, that got me scared to death. Um, Philip writes, I'm into sick movies like that. Also writes, good video. Uh, Lisa on Facebook writes, love, love this movie. 
So let me give you guys, the people who don't know, a little backstory to the Amityville House Horror movie. First of all, they're right. It was a book. Uh, it centers around the Lutz family that bought the house. And 28 days later, in the middle of the night, abandoned everything. Just picked up their family and left. They never went back for their belongings or anything. Just left. They told the story. It picked up a lot of traction in the, in the news media and also eventually led to the book. Now, it is inspired by real events. The story starts with the family that owned the house prior. And that is the DeFeo family. Uh, one night, the oldest son, Ronald DeFeo, Ronnie DeFeo, killed his entire family while they were sleeping. He shot them uh, while they were sleeping. Uh, during the trial, he revealed that an evil spirit basically compelled him to kill his entire family. He is still alive today, I believe, and is still incarcerated. He's still in jail, and that's where he's going to spend the rest of his life is in, in the jail. Now, the controversy comes in is when the Lutz family moved in, which is the family that is featured in the movie. After they abandoned the house, like I said, the news spread like wildfire. All the news outlets picked up on it. They appeared on talk shows everywhere. Uh, and it drew paranormal investigators from all over the world, including the very famous Ed and Lorraine Warren. And if you don't know who they are, those are the characters on which the Conjuring movies are based on. Okay, Ed and Lorraine Warren were like the thing when it came to paranormal investigations back in the 70s and so on. That's why when you watch the Conjuring movies, that's why they take place in the 70s. Okay, anyway, Lorraine Warren uh, did go on record when she did visit the house saying that she did feel an evil presence in that house. The problem is, though, that ever since the Lutz family abandoned the house, there have been no other reports of paranormal activity. None. That's where people, well, when they first came out with the story, really questioned them. You got to remember, this is the 70s, and people don't go around talking about their house being haunted. Uh, so their credibility was taken into question as to whether they were trying to profit off of their experience from the book, the eventual movie, uh, or did this really happen to them? The house remains a very huge attraction. Amityville is in Long Island. Now, if you really look deep into the history of the location, Long Island, New York City, is... Uh, this is where it kind of gets a little fuzzy, but it is really full of ancient... Indian sacred burial grounds. And supposedly that house is built right over one. All right. Uh, the people, the current owners of the house, because yeah, the house is still there. They've completely remodeled it. 
from what you just saw in that trailer, it, the house did look uh, with the way it, the way it looked in the movie with those windows that look like the house has eyes and it's looking at you. They've completely torn that down, redone the house so it's not recognizable. They even went as far as changing the street address, but it has not dissuaded people to this day uh, from driving by, trying to get into the house and visit the most infamous, haunted, but is it really haunted house that we have seen on the movies. So, you know, everyone has their own opinion on it. Uh, I'll leave that up to you guys. But if you haven't watched the movie, and just a note, there have been many sequels and remakes that have been done in the years after the original came out. Even until fairly recently, there are still movies being made about the Amityville house. Some are decent, like the sequels are not anything related to any true events. But the sequel to the original Amityville Horror, it's called The Amityville Horror The Possession. That was actually a pretty good movie. I liked it. But anything else after that just became kind of really ridiculous. Okay? So if you guys are interested and you really want to see a scary-ass movie, go ahead and watch the original 1979 Amityville Horror. Now moving on to the next movie which I just love and I mentioned just a little while ago, and that's The Conjuring. The Conjuring was not supposed to be the big hit that it became into. It has spurred on its own Conjuring universe with its own spinoffs, such as uh, two Annabelle movies, that really creepy doll Annabelle, uh, The Nun, that demonic nun, that we got to meet in the second Conjuring movie. And the nun got her own movie, which is called The Nun, by the way. Uh, so the story of the first con Again, the story of the, the Conjuring movie center around Ed and Lorraine Warren. They were the big deal when it came to paranormal investigators. Um, and Lorraine Warren passed away fairly recently. Uh, she passed away fairly recently. Ed, her husband, passed away a while ago, but Lorraine passed away fairly recently. Now, in the case of the first movie, the original, The Conjuring, it's, an, again, inspired by, by real events. You guys got to be careful when you start a movie and it says either based on true events, inspired by real events, it's very tricky. Basically, they're taking a story and they're adding a lot of twists, turns, and stuff that never really happened for the purpose of making it a movie and much more entertaining. Now, in The Conjuring, it takes place on a farmhouse. There's a lot of elements in the movie that they hold true to what happened in real life. Uh, what is not true is the hangings, the uh, child sacrifice that they reference in the movie, that never happened, okay? So Ed and Lorraine Warren were called in to investigate this when this was happening to the, to the family that is featured in the Conjuring movies. Now, the big difference 
from the movies and what happened in real life is that famous scene in the movie with the seance, okay? When they are doing that seance in the movie, that actually did happen in real life as well. But what happened was in real life during that seance, that, that freaky stuff that you see on the screen, a lot of it did actually, at least what we're told, did happen in the real life scenario, but it really upset the family that lived there. Uh, they basically accused the Warrens of taking it too far, angering whatever was already in there, and they were kicked out. They were asked to leave the house and never come back. Now, in the movie, that never happens. The Warrens stay there to the finality. There's an exorcism that is performed. If you guys have not seen the movie, I don't want to reveal too much, but I love The Conjuring Universe. I love the original Conjuring movie. The sequel is really good as well. Again, the sequel is also based on another similar story that takes place in the United Kingdom. Ed and Lorraine Warren travel to the United Kingdom to investigate it. I love the sequel. And like I mentioned at the beginning of this show, the third movie, which I don't know what the story is on the third movie, uh, is going to be released on June 4th. And it's called The Devil Made Me Do It. So I'm very much, very looking forward to that. And The Conjuring, the way it's put together, the movie, it really can go off and they have taken advantage of all the spinoffs. Like in the beginning of The Conjuring movie, it starts with them telling the story of Annabelle. Okay, and of course Annabelle, that creepy-ass doll, all, to this date has two movies, maybe more are coming. And then we had The Nun. The Nun was a great movie that uh, also ties in to the very beginning of The Conjuring movie when Ed and Lorraine Warren are in that lecture hall giving a lecture. And if you watch The Nun all the way through to the end, you'll see how it ties into that lecture that they're giving in the first movie of The Conjuring. Beyond that, I don't want to spoil it. Uh, Khaleesi has not seen The Conjuring. Khaleesi, if you watched Insidious today, I, I highly recommend that you watch The Conjuring because The Conjuring, Insidious is great. The Conjuring is even better. Uh, Jason Byrne writes, Annabelle is still in the family. The second movie Jason writes is based in Enfield, London. The sec Yeah, that's the second Conjuring film. And again, like I said, that is also based on a true story. Now, we have, we're almost out of time, but there are a lot more movies that I want to touch on. Uh, I mentioned Paranormal Activity, the first one, very small budget, made over $193 million worldwide. Uh, it spurred on like four or five sequels. Uh, the only one that I really liked after the original was Paranormal Activity 3. In fact, in a lot of ways, Paranormal Activity 3, the third one, is as good, if not better, than the first. And that's very difficult and very hard to find where when you're talking about sequels. 
to find a sequel uh, that is as good, if not better, than the original. But out of all the sequels that came after Paranormal Activity, Paranormal Activity 3 was great. And what I love about the Paranormal Activity movies is that they are told in reverse order. The first movie is the most recent, latest events, okay? This is until you get into, like, the fifth one and so on. But anyway, the second movie takes place, and this is time-wise, you know, takes place before the first movie. The third one goes even further back to when they were kids, and it gives you a lot of the origin story of how this whole demon attached themselves to this family. So, if you haven't watched the Paranormal Activity movies, at least watch 1, 2, and 3. They're really good. Really, really good. And we have other great movies on this list. I mean, there are a ton of awesome paranormal movies out there. I mentioned yesterday that there's the majority of the greatest paranormal movies are these very non-heavily advertised, I don't want to say low-budget, but not as big a budget as like the Conjuring movies. I saw a great one the other night called Welcome to Mercy. If you go, if you have, if you're subscribed to Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, uh, there is a whole section dedicated to paranormal movies. And if you really look closely, you're going to find a lot of movies that you never heard about that are really amazing, that are done really well. And you'd be surprised at how many of them are international films. Um, a lot of them are from like Indonesia. So great, great movies. Now, before we go, we got to mention Poltergeist, okay? Poltergeist, a great movie, came out in the 1980s. They remade it uh, within the last 10 years, I believe. The remake was not that bad either, but the original Poltergeist with Carol Ann, the TV, scary as hell. I mean, talk about a movie that is really scary. Uh, please watch the original Poltergeist movie. Uh, like I said, the, it's about a family. At the end of the movie, they discover the, the father is part of this real estate company, this construction building company. And his boss, he finds out that, you know, he moved his family into one of their new developments. And the new development was over cemetery. And instead of moving the cemetery properly to a new, lo a new location, what the construction company boss did, he just removed the headstones. And he put the headstones somewhere else, but left the bodies still buried in the same spot and build a whole home community over them. Now, you can imagine the chaos that that caused, uh, but it's a great movie, great story, Poltergeist. I don't have the exact year, but it's from the 1980s. Um, C.C. Wheezy writes, What demon calls himself Toby? It's paranormal activity. The name of the demon, well, that's the name that he gives the kids, uh, is Toby. That's the name of the demon. The actual demon's name himself, I don't think we actually find out. 
But the way the last movie, the way it was made, uh, it just got really ridiculous. Oh, Sass says 1982. So 1982 is when Poltergeist came out. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. We are actually past the one hour mark. We are off tomorrow. We're coming back Monday with Charlie from Fear the Walking Dead is our special guest. Alexa Neeson is going to be our special guest this coming Monday, December 7th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern right here on Dead Talk Live. Please tune in for that one. Going to get a lot of information. She has been on the show now for three full seasons. So it's going to be a great conversation with uh, Alexa. And next week, we also have uh, a special guest on Wednesday we have uh, Justin Carey, who is uh, Black Summer, the the main co-lead star. And then the very next day, we have his, his other co-lead star, Jamie King, both from Black Summer, the hit Netflix zombie show. So we have three special guests coming up next week. To get more information, please visit our website, deadtalklive.com. Please visit our YouTube channel, which is called Dead Talk Live. Go ahead and subscribe if you have yet to do so. Thank you so much. I hope everyone enjoys the rest of your weekend. And until Monday night, guys, please stay safe and always stay walking. Good night.